Philippians is a, um, a prison letter of Paul's. I think he's got four of those. And this is one of the prison letters. And if you could shorthand the theme of Philippians, it's about our, he's admonishing the Philippian Christians and by implication us um, uh, to imitate Christ. He wants us to be imitators of Christ. And by the way, uh, the su- kind of subtext, sub-theme of the epistle is that if we do that, it'll be a real joy. <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive, but um, to imitate Christ and know where you're headed uh, with your cross and to count it all joy. But that is the theme of Philippians. And Paul is in no way saying, even though he's you know, an, an elder apostle and he's founded churches, he's constantly saying in this epistle and other epistles that he's not yet arrived yet, and he picks up that theme again in chapter 3 here at verse 17. And he just mentions this briefly. Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. For as I have often told you and say now again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame, for they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, in the Lord. Father, our thoughts are with you this morning and with your presence with us, and we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray this morning, though, Lord, though we see through a glass darkly in this world and only approximate the truth, we pray for your word to instruct us this morning that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding <clears throat> to follow your word and instruct us about our times. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> so I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone in this room this morning or anyone listening uh, on Facebook or elsewhere that um, the American church has been experiencing uh, an unusually challenging and disturbing period in its history. And I mean that both internally and its many and varied congregations across the country and also externally in its witness to the nation And that holds true for all kinds of congregations, left, right, and center. But the thing is, there's also a tendency in the American church to kind of point fingers at outside sources as if the problems are out there. Now, I don't deny that there's a lot of problems outside the church that we're contending with, but, you know, the church has its own blind spots. It's got problems of its own making. I'm talking in general about the American church in general. And... What I'd like us to think about as we begin this morning is that, you know, if we're pointing fingers, we need to remember what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, that, you know, let's look at the, 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 the plank of wood in our own eye before we try to help others uh, with their own issues 
So this morning I'd like to talk about a problem of the American church, specifically what I would call uh, the way in which the church seems to be taking um, too many of its cues from the nation rather than from Jesus and the Gospels. So our text this morning is what we'll look at, and we'll try to um, use that as a springboard to talk about some things. And I want to just focus on that short but timely and important phrase in, in chapter 3, verse 20, about our citizenship in heaven, our citizenship in heaven. As I was thinking about this, I thought, well, you know, when you think of heaven, our, you know, your thoughts often turn to sort of the next life and, um, you know, what's going to happen there, and it's kind of cloudy, and we don't really know. Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about that. But I'd like our focus this morning to be our citizenship on earth as it is in heaven, to pinch a phrase from Jesus' prayer to us that he gave us also in the Sermon on the Mount. Our citizenship on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in the Greek language um, you know, of the New Testament, the word citizenship in in chapter 3, verse 20, is, it's a noun, and I'll say why I'm mentioning that in a minute. And it's uh, also translated commonwealth besides citizenship. And commonwealth is just a traditional English word for uh, a, a, a group of um, people who have joined together for the common good. It may be, um, I mean, there's some states in the United States that are technically commonwealths, although they're in the United States. And and, uh, um, you know, the British Commonwealth was a commonwealth of many nations for a long time. So it's a political community, a commonwealth, the citizenship uh, that Paul's on about there is uh, just a community founded for the common good. And Paul also mentions our citizenship in heaven in his epistle to the Ephesian church in which he reminds the non-Jewish believers there that they're fellow citizens with God's people. So the question before us this morning is, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Any takers? You can shout out an answer and embarrass yourself if you want. I'm embarrassing myself up here. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? All right, I like that. We belong to Jesus and he's our identity. Thank you. You've been reading my notes. I know it's, it's tricky to think about because it is kind of cloudy and, uh, you know, it's, it's um, not something that comes immediately to mind. Um, but I think we could say, say that, as we'll go on to see here in a minute, that it's about our behavior and a way of life in this world. Um, so in, also in Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a big clue <clears throat> where in chapter 1, verse 27, there's this curious little phrase where he admonishes the Philippian believers to live a life worthy uh, of the manner of the gospel of Christ, to live a life worthy of the manner of the gospel of Christ. As I was looking into this, I've discovered that that little phrase there, um, um, uh, to live in the manner of, is the verb form of the word noun in citizenship. And what Paul is doing early in the epistle, and then he's linking it to the word citizenship later on in his letter, he's, he's really getting the attention of the Philippian Christians by this word citizenship. He's linking these two things together, kind of like sometimes writers do in English. They kind of pace and lead you to some main point. That's what Paul is doing here. 
He's calling attention to the fact about citizenship that would have had a special significance to the Philippian Christians. How so? Well, a little history. Uh, the town of, it wasn't a big town. It was, it was a medium-sized town of Philippi in Macedonia. It was a Roman colony, and in particular, a, a Roman town, and in particular, a military colony for about 200 years before the time, uh, or at the time of Paul's epistle when he was writing this uh, prison letter from Rome. <clears throat> and um, most of the population in Philippi would have been Roman citizens. And that is to say they were people who enjoyed the rights and protections and enforcement um, that they had uh, under the laws of Rome as a way of life because they were Roman citizens. And many of the believers in Philippi would have been Roman citizens. That's how they would have been raised. Uh, another way to say this is that it was just the done thing. It was a normal way of life for the Philippians to rely on the laws of Rome to protect and enforce their rights as citizens of the empire. Um, it was second nature to them. Um, it's just how they were raised from childhood. And I think it should be easy for us to understand that as Americans who are also citizens who rely on and you know, place a high value on our rights as American citizens. So Paul's using that high value that they place on being a Roman citizenship to get their attention, to admonish them. Back to what our sister just said, that as followers of Jesus, they are first and foremost, what? Citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. But you see, then comes the rub, because he's not asking them to think about some hazy future that we don't know much about. He's concerned with how they're living as citizens of heaven in this world on earth. And so he admonishes them in 127 to conduct themselves in a manner of living, in a way of life <clears throat> that doesn't take, <clears throat> take its cues ultimately from the empire, but from the gospel of Christ. So he's making a dramatic contrast there between being citizens of Rome and citizens of heaven. And he doesn't want their witness in the world to be organized around the rights they have as citizens of the empire. He wants their witness, the witness of their daily lives uh, to be organized around what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Um, and as I mentioned, the entire epistle, you know, it's a plea from the heart to imitate Christ in this world. So coming out of the past into the present, um, the question then becomes, what does it mean for those of us who are American citizens to be first and foremost citizens of heaven. <clears throat> well, maybe we can answer that by looking at something that doesn't seem so foreign, so distant, so far away, something closer to home. Because just as the Philippian Christians, the believers there were raised to rely on the Roman Constitution, so too we as Americans are raised to rely on our Constitution, especially for the protection of our rights. So I thought it would be helpful just to think for a minute, just a couple minutes here, about what a Constitution is. What's it for? Just a couple quick notes. <clears throat> a Constitution is a legal and political document about the creation of a people. It sets forth basic principles, values, and commitments, uh, a way of life. It defines a way of life, a formal statement for the way in which a people should treat one another who live under that constitution. 
In that sense, it's about law and justice for those people who live under the Constitution. Another thing we often don't think of is the Constitution has its authors. And these authors have a clear set of ideas. They have a kind of vision statement, if you will, um, for the kind of life that they see that they want for a people. So it's a kind of a plan for a way of life. So as far as the U.S. Constitution goes, it was ratified, of course, as you know, in 1788. It had a number of authors, uh, and it was in large part, and this is often overlooked, uh, it was about the continuation of a creation of people that began decades earlier. And then that continued with the Articles of Confederation, and then with the signing of, or sorry, with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and then the um, uh, um, uh, uh, Articles of Confederation, and then the drafting of the U.S. Constitution and its signing in 1788. But that's not the end of the story either, is it? Because the U.S. Constitution has a bunch of amendments, many amendments, and it's particularly important in those are, are the all-important Bill of Rights. And um, none of those amendments, by the way, are meant to change or radically alter the fundamental Constitution, but to enhance it. So what has any of that to do with what Paul's saying to the Philippian Christians? And by implication, what does it have to do, if anything, for us today as American citizens? Well, one thing I've been thinking about is that when it comes to the pinch, we Americans are pretty skilled at relying on uh, our rights as American citizens to solve a lot of our problems. Um, we're pretty skill skilled at that. It's kind of second nature to us. So the question then becomes um, pretty challenging at that point. Um, you know, is that the way we're to live our lives as the Apostle Paul admonishes us uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? These are things I've been thinking about. Uh, others have been thinking about it that I know. I'll, I'll just share with you quickly that um, in recent weeks I've been having conversations with a number of Christians uh, who have been thinking about these kinds of things. Um, they're deeply disturbed by what they see as a rising tendency among American Christians to rely way too heavily uh, on their personal rights, on the protection of their rights, uh, rather than on Jesus and the gospel. And I agree that that's a problem, and it's a problem in the church. It's not some problem out there somewhere. It's a problem in here, in our own lives, in our own hearts, in the American church scene. So how about another uh, you know, question? Do Christians, sorry, do citizens of heaven have a constitution? It'd be nice if we did. Do we have a formal document about the creation of a people? Does it have an author? Does it have a definitive vision for a way of life that's worthy of the gospel, a way for American Christians to live in this nation as followers of Jesus? And if we have such a vision statement, what would our reliance on it mean in an utterly practical sense for our lives every day here in 21st century America? Well, I believe that we do have such a constitution and that it was given to us by Jesus himself. It's the document that we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, I haven't worked this through fully yet, and I'm among friends this morning. I've been thinking about it for quite a while. Uh, so, if, you know, you can help me out, you know, in the due course in the future on this. Let me know. 
Uh, maybe there's some course corrections that need to be made. Uh, you know, we can all see a bit further down the road and get more wisdom from God on this, as the case may be. But one thing does seem clear to me, and here I want to be a little tough on us this morning. In the Constitution that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, there's no mention of rights. It does not talk about rights. The Sermon on the Mount is about duties and responsibilities. It's not about rights. It's about duties and responsibilities that we have toward one another and toward people outside the church. And let me just add this poignant note. There are no amendments to Jesus' constitution. You're in the kingdom. You're a Christian. The choice is before you. Um, let me just do a little sidebar here. I thought this would be, I'm gonna, we're going to look for in a minute at some of the duties uh, of the sermon, of our Constitution, but I just thought a little sidebar here would be helpful. Uh, why does Jesus emphasize duties and rights in the Sermon on the Mount? It's a pretty important question. So you know that he was raised uh, in his family and religiously educated in, in what we call the Old Testament times and in Judaism in the religion of the Jews back then. Uh, that's pretty obvious to us. There was no New Testament in Jesus' time, uh, no church per se. And so Jesus was um, raised and educated a different way than we are. But it might interest you to know that the Old Testament doesn't think in terms of rights. It thinks in terms of duties and responsibilities that God's people have toward one another and toward the outsider. That's the tradition. That's the tradition in which Jesus was raised, and he was religiously educated that way. It's how he's thinking when he sets forth our Constitution, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to add quickly that this is not to say that America or the world in general has not made any ethical progress since, for instance, 1948 with the institution of the UN's Declaration of Human Rights. Nor is it to say that the calling that we have as Christians means completely ignoring any rights that we have as American citizens. The Apostle Paul, for example, relied on his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, right? Well, you might want to remember that didn't work out too well in the end for him. So you never know how that appeal is going to lead. But that's another story. End of sidebar. All right, so most of us, if you've been a believer any time at all, for any length of time, um, we're familiar enough with the Sermon on the Mount and what's in it. Um, at least I hope you are. I'm not going to take you through the whole sermon now. I thought I'd do something a little bit different. <clears throat> uh, and ask us to ponder some of the duties that Jesus sets forth there in contrast to some very common attitudes today. In fact, I know a church that's um, doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount every Sunday right now. And remember this as we get going here. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is just the starting place. We have the rest of the Gospels and all the epistles, which in their own way, shape, and form uh, articulate uh, basically what Jesus is putting forward in the Sermon on the Mount. These are apostles who, you know, except for the apostle Paul, lived with Jesus 
were trained by Jesus or heard Jesus' words and in their epistles are there giving to the churches they founded and the people they're writing those words in their own ways. Um, I like what a dear friend of mine and pastor Mike, Mike Osminski uh, pointed out to me about the sermon and its importance at this, this sort of beginning stage. He said that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five teaching segments of Jesus recorded in Matthew and it represents the most basic teachings that the followers of Jesus receive on their way to both being disciples and making disciples. And so its placement by the church at the beginning of the first gospel indicates just how foundational and seminal the teaching is. So let's keep that in mind as well. So what are some of the duties and responsibilities that our Lord sets forth for us in the Sermon on the Mount? I'm just going to mention a few and you can um, sort of think about these as we go along. We have a duty not to be angry with the brother, but if you are, go and be reconciled. Look, man, I got a right to be angry. I've got a right to some free speech here, don't I? I can say what I want. I'm not apologizing. He should apologize to me. We have a duty to settle a matter quickly if anyone is taking you to court. But I've got a right to sue that company, don't I? And that's what I'm going to do. We have a duty not to lust at a man or a woman. But I'm not hurting anyone. Pornography is not illegal. It's not against the law. We've got a duty to turn the other cheek. Hey, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say eye for eye and tooth for tooth? We have a duty to love our enemies. You know, I was looking at this the other day, and I saw something interesting that some commentator said. He said, do you know why that in that phrase uh, where Jesus talks about loving your enemies, he also uh, says to pray for your enemies? I thought, no, I don't know why. Uh, I never thought of it. And he said, it's because it's hard to love your enemies. And if you pray for them, it's a step toward being able to love them. Fascinating. I think, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. But too often we want to fight them because we feel we have a right to. We have a duty to pray for those who persecute us. Well, I ain't praying for them. They can go to you know where. I don't like them. We have a duty to store up treasures not to, sorry, we have, to, we have a duty to store up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Now, wait a minute, brother. I'm a capitalist. I can accumulate as much wealth as I want. And on and on it goes. It's wonderful and encouraging and challenging all at the same time to read the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of duties and responsibilities. A duty to have no anxiety about what we will eat, drink, or wear. A duty to go the extra mile. A duty not to judge others. And importantly, to seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness and much more besides. It's quite a contrast, isn't it, to standing up for our rights. Look, friends, doesn't the Bible say that we're a peculiar people? <laughs> but just how peculiar do we really look if we sound and act like the crowd 
The Apostle Peter writes that once you were not a people, but by now, by the mercy of God, you are the people of God. You are also a holy nation, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a people of God, a nation, a holy nation, and as such we have been given a constitution and given it by our Lord and King himself. So I'm being a little frank this morning. I'll be a blunt right now too. We American Christians are going to have to decide where our allegiance, our primary loyalty is going to reside in the duties and responsibilities required of us by our Christian constitution or in the protection of our individual rights afforded us by the U.S. Constitution. And this isn't someone else's problem out there. It's our problem, a problem in and of the American church. And it's costing us dearly until we get this sorted out in our hearts, for it means that our public witness is harming the cause of Christ and his gospel. So I think we need to acknowledge this, our own contribution to this. I've been trying to do this in my own life, and I have friends who have been trying to do this as well. We need to acknowledge it and repent. And part of that repentance and renewal would be to raise really high in value and priority the responsibilities that we have as citizens of heaven to fulfill the duties of our Christian constitution. And look, as you do that, as you raise that high in value, it will lower in value importance and importance the reliance that we place on our rights as American citizens. To conclude, and I, I don't think I've ever done this before in, in the pulpit here, but I want to refer you to uh, a message I preached here a little over a year ago called The Refiner's Fire. Uh, I'm going to ask you to go back and re-listen to that, or if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. And in particular, listen to the part about where I talk about the human heart. Why the heart? Um, and if you don't know quite how to get to that sermon, I'm, Brennan can point it to you on the church's website or come and ask me and I'll share with you how to get to it. I talk about the heart in that sermon quite a bit. It's not the only thing, but I believe God is refining our hearts as Christians. Why the heart? Because in Scripture, the heart is a word used for our central identity, that from which flows all the issues of life, as Proverbs 4.23 says, and see also Matthew 12.34. In other words, it's the center of our thought. And this is in the Hebrew word lub or labub. Interesting little short word in Hebrew. But it, it's, it's a word, it's a metaphor in the Old Testament for the center of our thoughts, our feelings, our will, our emotions, our knowledge even. Do you want to know what the heart of Jesus is like? Read the Sermon on the Mount. He's offering us a revelation of his heart in the sermon. But not only that, his heart for us, for you and for me, for those who would be his followers. But you know, our hearts are not like Jesus' heart, are they? His was an undivided heart, a heart totally committed to and able to follow the will of the Father and to please the Father. But we know only too well our hearts have divided loyalties but by God's saving grace, our hearts are in the process of renewal and transformation. But, you know, it's not a one-off event at conversion. 
we're continually in the process of being renewed. Our hearts are hopefully becoming more like Jesus all the time, and we're becoming more and more like him. <clears throat> and here we come back to <clears throat> the Apostle Paul. He really understood this. Um, back to Philippians, and I'll just read to you another um, word of admonishment that he gives to the Philippian Christians on this. It comes in the text right before our opening text, Philippians 3.12. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to that which we have already obtained. I know I'm setting before us this morning some homework, and it's not something that you do overnight. It's an ongoing process, and that it does take work to fulfill the duties the sermon requires of us for our heart's renewal. But it's part of our Christian discipleship, and it ought to become second nature to us. Jesus knows it requires work on our part, diligence, persistence, discipline. Here's how he put it at the end of the sermon, at the end of the Constitution. These are familiar words that we all know well. Therefore, as someone once said, every time you see the word therefore, you've got to look up a previously and see what it's there for. <laughs> it's therefore because he's just come out of the sermon. Therefore, everyone who fears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down. He's referring to the sermon here, folks the wise man, the words, the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But, I call that the divine conjunction. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now listen to what the crowd says. That's the end of the Constitution right there. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Father God, we thank you for your presence with us and your word to us. We pray, Lord, that 
the good seeds that were planted. You would water them and bring fruit in our lives and that you would cause crop failure to any of the bad seeds. For we only see through a glass darkly and approximate the truth of things. We rely on your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, for your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for um, Paul's other words to us that you, nothing can separate us from your love, Lord. Not depth nor height, nor any other creation, nor powers, nor principalities. Nothing can separate us from your love. Not our sins, not our dis disobediences, our stubbornnesses, our misunderstandings, but in all things you will work good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. So, Lord, we commit our lives afresh to you again this day. And we thank you for your loving kindnesses to us. Amen. <clears throat>